In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee, and blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us, sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Queen of Peace, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Good evening, everyone. This life of conformity to the things of God, which requires us to be molded by God, to be transformed through the graces that he bestows upon us, does indeed lead us to action. And as we concluded this afternoon, I encouraged you, if you were so inclined, to spend some time contemplating the virtue of humility, not only to recognize those things that are absent in your life, where God needs to make up for what is lacking in you, but just as importantly to understand the many gifts and talents and blessings that you have been endowed with need to be disposed of according to God's design as well. This is true humility. False humility only recognizes that which is wrong, that which is absent, that which needs fixing. True humility is able to also see the ways in which God has blessed you, the gifts and the talents that God has bestowed upon you. For in truth, God would would not make or create any one individual, any one of his sons, such that all that could be said about them is all the things that were wrong with them. Even if you aren't able to see your gifts and talents, they are there nonetheless. And so if we are truly humble before the sight of God and we allow ourselves to be molded into men of humility who allow that then to lead to action, what comes after that then listening to God in humility is being obedient to the things that God is asking us to do. Those rules and regulations, if you will, by which we govern our life according to the tradition of the church, but also those ways that God speaks to us and places things on our hearts. We may or may not always respond immediately to those things, And oftentimes our inability to respond immediately comes in large measure because we aren't able to be obedient to God. We know what it is that we ought to do. We even have an understanding of our ability to do it. But for some reason we hold ourselves back and we refuse to do it. I don't know if I share this with you, but I began my life as a religious. For eight years I was a member of the Society of Jesus, the Jesuits, of the Missouri province. I usually wait to share that until the end of the retreat so that my credibility isn't completely or totally lost. Okay, so make sure you're still awake. We've got a couple more minutes together. I love my time in the Society of Jesus. I was educated in a Jesuit high school and, of course, Jesuit university in my time in the Society. And of the three vows that we were required to take, the one that I always struggled with, and it could be argued I struggle with that promise even now, was obedience. Not only because I am willful and self-directed, oftentimes believing myself uh, endowed with almost superhuman strength, an intelligence that surpasses everybody in the room and maybe everybody on earth. And when you're 18 years old, that's magnified 10, 50, and 100 fold. And so imagine an 18 year old with all that energy, that vim and vigor, being told what to do, when to do it, and how to do it. Didn't go over very well. I was a a spirited horse, if you will. 
that they strove mightily to break, and they almost got pretty close, but I have to say I worked pretty hard to keep my own freedom. And even as I peered into the future, once I took vows, simple and yet perpetual vows, what always stood before me was not a struggle of poverty, not a struggle with consecrated celibacy. It was the struggle to be obedient. And it really grows out of a lack of humility, an arrogance, and a pridefulness, but also an unwillingness to trust and to have confidence with God. It has gotten better, thanks be to God, in, in large measure simply because as I've grown older, I've grown tired of fighting, and so there's no reason to argue, and there's something nice about bumping it up to the higher authority. I always love to say that's a little bit above my pay grade. It's a nice thing to say now. Sometimes it's an excuse. Oftentimes it's true. And so I can be obedient because it kind of does indeed give me cover. But at my ordination to the diaconate, a picture that still hangs in my room everywhere I live, is me placing my hands in the hands of my ordinary. At that time, Cardinal, now Cardinal, then Archbishop Regali, do you promise obedience to me and my successors? I do. May God, who has begun the good work in you, bring it to completion. Amen. It's a simple exchange, not a lot of words. There are no caveats or asterisks attached to it. Do you promise obedience to me and my successors? Not when it's convenient, not when you want to hear it, not when it corresponds with what's going on in your life right now, not when you agree with it. Do you or don't you? No in between. And there's that gesture of submission, my hands placed in his as an outward manifestation of that interiority by which I gave my life into his hands and all those who have come after. In order to do that, I did have to let go of myself. There's no other way of actually doing that. But this is a lifetime process, brothers. And while I am grateful for the success that God has granted me, I know there's so much more that I still have to learn, so much more that I have to do, and so much more that I have to let go of. To be men who serve others, that right worship that leads to right conduct, that right conduct that involves humility, that humility then that leads to obedience. Because the first movement should never be me or my willfulness. The first, second, third ideas shouldn't necessarily be mine. There should always be a, a dispassion and, a, and almost a, a slowness to my movement so that God can always intervene and redirect there is something to that beautiful Benedictine exhortation to silence. Be quiet. Shut up. Let God talk. And then listen. And listen for a while before you necessarily move. Because the thing about the virtue of obedience is that long before doing, there is an interior transformation whereby I have already become free, free enough to give myself into the hands of God. And so at the beginning of John's gospel, we know we have that beautiful exchange uh, between Our Lady and the servants at the wedding feast at Cana. Do whatever he tells you to do. That's what she tells them. She doesn't necessarily know the specifics. She doesn't have to know the specifics. And, of course, she is the best person to give that exhortation because that's precisely what the whole of her life had been and continues to be, to do whatever it is he commanded her to do. How does she get there? Well, we know how she got there. Not only from the moment of her own immaculate conception, but her parents, Joachim and Anna, taking her to the temple, dedicating her to the temple, her life of prayer, her life of worship, 
leading eventually to her own consecration to virginity, and then being chosen as highly favored daughter to be the worthy tabernacle for the dwelling place of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Prince of Peace. She is the model of all virtue, the exemplar, especially of this virtue of obedience, because she listens with a a patience and a tranquility to the message of the angel Gabriel. Imagine hearing that you have been chosen to be the linchpin for the salvation of the whole world. Not just at that particular moment, but to reconcile that which was past, certainly that which is present, but also all that would come in the future. We are the inheritors, of course, of that affirmation, that yes, resoundingly, that Our Lady offers the angel Gabriel before he departs. But the very fact that he appears... The very fact that he recognizes her as highly favored and endowed with the fullness of grace. But she's not overwhelmed. Oftentimes there's this misunderstanding that her questions to the angel are prompted by fear or doubt. Her questions to the angel are prompted by a desire to do precisely what God is asking her to do. There is no doubt. There is no fear. There is no hesitation. Not because she knew everything, but she knew the best thing, and that was she was God's servant, God's slave. I am the handmaid of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. She took all of these things into her heart and then eventually allowed that heart to be pierced by the sadness of watching her only begotten son suffer and die. But even in that moment, she doesn't turn away. She doesn't run away from the cross. Instead, she stays firmly planted there from the beginning to the end, or really from the beginning to its consummation, until she takes her rightful place as the queen of heaven and earth. But then we need to hear the exhortation and then prepare ourselves to live out the exhortation, to do whatever it is that we are commanded to do. And I suspect it is this virtue, probably more than any other, that is difficult to live in the world. Because as Western men, we prize our freedoms. We prize our choices. And this is the greatest lie that Satan tells us over and over again. So much so we find ourselves defending the reality of choice solely that we might have that one moment, however fleeting it may be, that we can do whatever we want to do. So I'm going to let you do whatever you want to do so that when the moment comes, I'll be able to do whatever I want to do. This is why everybody in this country is so tied up with freedoms without any responsibilities attached to them at all. All sorts of choices. You can't just get coffee anymore. I don't go to Starbucks because it's just too overwhelming. All I want is coffee. I want black coffee. I'm looking up in the menu and I see a thousand different things, none of which are simply coffee. It's easier to go get it in the store and make it myself. But I love the choices. I love the value menu at Wendy's and McDonald's. I love the menu at Cheesecake Factory, which is actually a book. It's not a menu. Can you eat all that food? Do you want to eat all that food? Do I need all of those choices? We convince that we do. This is what society has told us. Because the choices mean the freedom. And the freedom to do what it is that I want to do. And of course, that has turned into the culture of death. Because we're not now really talking just about the choices at a restaurant or the types of coffee I'm going to make. We're talking about life and death. We're talking about family life and marriage. 
We're talking about the right relationships between men and women. We're talking about the true authentic dignity of the person as God has created him or her. These two, sadly, now have fallen under this cosmic reality that the world has created called choice that's supposed to be free. But therein lies the lie. Because people are killing themselves in record numbers. They're drugging themselves in record numbers. We're depressed and finding all sorts of ways except for the best of ways to respond to the lie that is this unfettered freedom. Because none of us, no matter how much we think we are, are actually free. I can't go up to the top of the tallest building, throw myself off, flap my arms, and fly away. I can call myself a bird until I'm blue in the face. But my body, the reality of my existence, will simply betray that fact, and I'll end up dead. I'll have had my freedom. I've had a chance to exercise my choices. But what will happen to me? as it is happening to the society and the culture and even in our own families, is that people are dying in body, they're dying in spirit. And they're holding on to the illusion that as long as I defend your freedom, I will have the freedom to do what I want, and that's more important than anything. But that's a lie. Because what's most important is truly giving oneself over into the hands of God and the authentic freedom that comes in obedience. All joking aside, one of the things about growing older is indeed that freedom that has come and recognizing that my bishop has a much larger responsibility than I, don't, that I could have and that actually I don't want. I have a little corner of God's vineyard that has been entrusted to my care. I have a small parish, a small work in the Archdiocese of St. Louis. I like that. I like the anonymity. I like the circumspection of it. I'm not on, I've done diocesan work. I've done it on the larger level. It's interesting. It's a little bit beguiling to be drawn in. Everyone likes their opinions, and it's good to know that people are listening to me, but that kind of fades after a while. I don't want all of that responsibility. I have enough saving the few souls that have been entrusted to my care. To have a whole archdiocese, to have a whole church, to have a, no, thank you. If God calls and God wills, then so be it. Until then, I've been able to pull back and rejoice in this gift of self to God, the obedience that actually has made me free. Now again, you know as well as I, the world does not accept this. The world actually actively rejects it. But we, again, have to be countercultural. And there probably isn't anything more countercultural than a commitment to obedience a willingness to accept authority, whether it be the natural authority of the laws that govern the land, or the supernatural authority that is manifest in the life of the church, the authority to which you submit when you're married. Husband and wife submit to each other. They have an authority and a governance over each other. The obedience when we listen to our parents, the obedience that we willingly and freely give to those that we allow to exercise authority over us, whoever they may be, and the freedom that actually comes in that. St. John Paul proclaimed one of the greatest things about this nation when he first came. I believe it was in 79, one of his first trips. He extolled the beauty of this country and the emphasis that we placed on freedom and self-directedness. But he said, authentic freedom is not to do what I want. Authentic freedom is to do as I ought. There's always something larger than ourselves. 
another will more important than our own, and that is the will of God. St. Paul writes in his exhortation to the Romans, Therefore, just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. For just as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Of course, to be the righteous man, like St. Joseph, means we have to be like his son, our Lord and Savior. We have to be, in order to be made righteous, there is required of us not only this life of right worship that forms what we do, that leads us to being men of humility, but then also a willingness to listen to God and to do what it is that he wants us to do and allow him to direct our lives. And in this way, as in all things connected to our Lord, we become again instruments and means of salvation for others. We participate in the salvific work of our Lord. One man's obedience is able to obliterate the disobedience that has plagued many. Of course, it is the God-man himself, Christ, who is the model of doing the work of the Father. He is consubstantial with the Father. That's what the church teaches us, that what we will profess in our creed tomorrow morning. He is God. Father, Son, and Spirit. And yet, as he himself professes on many occasions, especially in John's Gospel, he has come to do the Father's will. He is obedient to the will of his Father. He accepts the exhortations, he accepts the mandate bestowed upon him by his Father. This is not something that's forced on him. It's something that the Son willingly accepts in relationship to his beloved Father because of the intimacy that they share being consubstantial of the same substance. He spends in prayer when he is in the flesh as much time in conversation with the Father. Why? So when that moment in the garden comes, when all is said and done, he can then resolve, not my will, but your will be done. If this cup can pass away, then so be it. But if not, then I will do what the Father commands me to do. How does he get to the garden? Because the whole of his existence had been this constant listening, obedience to the Father. So when it came time to do what the Father commanded, he was able to do so. Was there a sorrow? Yes. We know from Scripture that in the garden the Lord was so sorrowful he was bleeding tears, blood pouring forth from him. But still he trusted he had confidence, and that trust and that confidence allowed him to be obedient. That's what also is expected of us. We already know that our lives are required to be sacrificial. We know that if we're going to emulate St. Joseph, we have to think less of ourselves and more of others to the point, again, of dying. And while we too may experience some of that struggle that the Lord himself makes manifest, we also have to pray and hope and prepare to then resolve to do what God asks us to do. But you know, brothers, again, when you go through these experiences in your own lived experiences, there's an authentic peace that comes when you finally resolve to do the right thing, even if the right thing is the hardest thing you have to do. It doesn't mean you necessarily want to do it, 
Doesn't mean it's even going to be easy to do it. But you know you have to do it. You resolve to do it. And there's a peace that comes on you. Obviously, as a priest, I am constantly given opportunities and situations where I have to tell people no. I have to give them news that they don't want to hear. I can't do X, Y, and Z. I can't do this, that, or the other thing for you, whatever it is it might be. Uh, whether it goes against church teaching or goes against my understanding, or I simply just don't think it's going to be good for you. And since my job is not to make people happy, but to save their souls, I have to tell them no. It'd be easier to say yes. I'd be popular. Everybody would like me. And who doesn't want to be liked? You know, it'd be good. But I was never a popular kid when I was in grade school. I was kind of in high school, and then I joined a religious life, and I became unpopular all over again. It's kind of fickle anyway, and it's really not that interesting to be liked by a whole bunch of people who really don't necessarily like themselves either. And yet, it is at times a temptation to take the easy way out. But once I resolve, once I've gone through a conversation, this was particularly true in the seminary, where you would have to tell a young man, this is not your vocation. This is not the place that you need to be. It's a hard thing to say when a man has his heart set on ordination to the priesthood. Or when I was the vicar for the permanent diaconate, he has his heart set on the diaconate. And yet there was always a peacefulness that came in resolving to say it and then saying it. And I knew that came not just from the rightness of the decision, but that the rightness of the decision and its execution were based in God's providence, his trust, his will. It wasn't just me making a decision that was comfortable for me. It was me listening to God and hopefully, and it has borne itself out to be the case, doing the things that God has commanded me to do. St. Francis de Sales, in his reflection upon virtues, says this, Love alone leads to perfection. But the three chief means for acquiring it, love, leading to perfection, are obedience, chastity, and poverty. He describes obedience as a consecration of the heart. Of course, chastity of the body, poverty of the worldly goods, to the love and service of God. But obedience is a consecration of the heart, reminding us again of the precondition to the execution of the commands that God bestows upon me. If I'm an obedient servant, if I'm truly the slave of the Lord, it comes about because I have given my heart over to God. I have slain my will and placed it on the altar of sacrifice so that God could receive it as the best gift given to him. This is what Francis de Sales enjoins us to. This docility, this amenability, this tractableness, where I truly am clay in the hands of the master potter to form me and mold me into the person that he wants me to be. He goes on to talk about voluntary and involuntary obedience. Of course, involuntary obedience is oftentimes an obedience that comes from laws, rules, regulations that rest outside of us. Voluntary obedience is that which goes to the heart of our relationship with God, where we freely, joyfully, in humility, give ourselves over to Him. Listening to God in prayer, listening to the voice of God as He speaks to us through church, listening to the voice of God as he speaks to us 
in the counsel that we may seek from others, whether it be priests, family, or friends. There is something supernatural, obviously, to this virtue. And as such, it requires that we recognize that we are supernatural creatures as well. That, the, that we then have recourse to supernatural realities, meaning we need to be men of fervent prayer. I'm going to talk about prayer tomorrow morning to draw all of this to conclusion. But there's no way to be successful in any of this, all about which we have spoken, this whole project of being a Catholic man in the 21st century. There's no way to successfully do this apart from creating and then sustaining an ongoing intimate relationship with our Lord and Savior. To wear the new man and to slay the old. To live in obedience to the Father and to submit our wills as His Son did. We have to know Him. Not just know what He did as we read sacred scripture, but to know Him kind of inside out. It's not accidental that this fitting way that the Lord has chosen to respond to Nicodemus, how am I reborn again? How do I keep this going by giving us the gift of himself so that it's not just God outside of me? That's the old law. It's God who literally is inside of me. So how can I be like our Blessed Mother? Well, the Lord says, by receiving me in the most holy Eucharist. I will give myself to you in a way that you are able to receive me. And then in receiving me, you need to be like our Blessed Mother in the act of reception. Taking the Lord inside, allowing yourself to be tabernacled. All of that leading to this life of obedience that eventually leads to a life of joy. St. Ignatius of Loyola wrote extensively about obedience because it was, and maybe still is, that's arguable, the virtue that stands out in the society of Jesus and among Jesuits. We were always told that we were men on mission, and the whole world is under mission. There aren't just different provinces, if you will. Even if there aren't Jesuits in a particular place, it still is part of a particular province. Such was Ignatius's understanding that the whole world belonged to the society of Jesus, and all of us were on mission to transform the world. But he speaks about a variety of degrees of humility. Certainly a degree of action, being humble and obedient in what we do. But the deeper ones are not only submitting our wills to God, he says even submitting our judgment and our intellect to God. Meaning that my first instinct isn't to follow my own ideas, but to have recourse to what God will say to me, how God will speak to me. Allowing God to speak to me through the myriad ways that he will want to do that. And then trusting that, in a sense, even more than myself. Ignatius encouraged what he described as a distrust of self. Well, how countercultural, counterintuitive is that? If you can't trust your own self, who can you trust? And yet here we are being enjoined to don't even trust that. Trust God. Because if we are honest, we know that at times we can betray ourselves. And if we're not always in a posture of purifying our intentions, we may actually not do a bad thing, but we may not do the greatest thing that we need to do for God. And we did, after all, talk about that last evening. That what we're searching for is not just good to God, but the greatest glory to God. And God needs to be intimately involved in helping me not only to do that, but before I even do it, to understand what it is and to execute it properly. Of course, St. Joseph is indeed the righteous man, 
And while not like Our Lady in terms of uh, the fullness of grace from the moment of His own birth, nonetheless a life spent listening and doing the things of God so that indeed when He was commanded and He received what it is that He was supposed to do in a dream, He was already predisposed to accept it. And then, of course, He acted on it. And obedience is complete and total. There isn't a little bit you get to hold off and keep to yourself. There isn't a little bit of your own will, your own self that you get to hold on to. You're either giving God everything, or sadly, if you're holding back, then you're giving Him truly nothing. Because the peace you're holding back may be the very peace that He wants. And you don't get to decide what peace of God you give Him. God will let you know. He may take all of it. He may take this, that, or the other thing. He may take some here, and then here, and then here. You don't know when. So your disposition has to be, I'm giving everything to God now and always. And then I'm allowing Him to decide when and how He'll use it. Not an easy thing to accomplish. But neither an impossibility. This is why our Lord, in addition to expiating our sins, comes in the flesh to reveal to us that the flesh can indeed cooperate. Yes, Adam and Eve were disobedient. Yes, the chosen people at times rejected the covenant. But there is an obedient one. And there have been before and there have been now those complete in their obedience through him and with him and in him. And you too can be obedient to God and do the things of God. Of course, the implication of this in obedience, as it truly is in all this, is a life of sacrifice, a willingness to die. Not an easy thing itself as well, but no one ever said this was easy. So let's just agree that it's going to be hard. And let's just accept that there's going to be something that you're going to have to let go of. Let's just accept that there are going to be things that are going to cause you discomfort and maybe make you unhappy and that might even be unpleasant. Let's get that out in the open. Let's go ahead and shed the few tears we feel we need to share. Let's bemoan this fact, and then let us get beyond it. Let's move away from it. We know that it is going to require some change for us. Because there is no great gift bestowed upon us without some type of sacrifice. There is no Easter Sunday without a Good Friday. And there's no way around the cross. And the cross is not meant to be something that we simply go around or we get done with and we push it off the side. The cross sacrifice is an integral part of our lives as Catholic men. A willingness to die because that's precisely what the Lord himself did. If he did it. How could I keep myself from that as well? And why does he do this? Why does he accept this sacrificial? Why does he accept this sacrificial life and make of himself sacrifice? Out of obedience to the will of his Father. And so, we will conclude by talking about prayer, which really is the indispensable tool that assists us in covering all of the bases of the things about which we have spoken. But maybe for this evening, especially as we conclude with night prayer to contemplate those ways that you have cooperated with God's grace and to thank him for the ability to cooperate, but then also to be honest with him in those ways that you have failed to cooperate, where there has been a willfulness and a self-directedness, where there has been disobedience to the things that God commands, whether it be to the teachings of the church, whether it be to God speaking to you in prayer, however it might manifest itself. Don't berate yourself about it, but recognize it. Recognize what it is that's in you that needs to die in order that you might be able to truly live. 
Recognize the ways that you need to become more pliable in the hands of God, to become more obedient to God, in order that you can truly live in the peace and the freedom that God provides us. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.